Danny, it is so, so good to have you in the house because it's just uh, beside myself. I don't even know how to even talk now. <laughs> yeah, have you ever been where you've been introduced five times before you even start? Yeah, so. I know. Really? Have you? <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I don't mind. It's really great to be here, you guys. The pleasure's all mine. We're going to talk about your amazing work with a laundry list of artists, including your your two decades now with George. You're at about 20 years with George Clinton now, aren't you? Yeah, eight, 18 years on the road. I've been working for him in some extremity for uh, somewhere around 22 years now, something like that. 20, 24 years, something. But on the road, 18, 18 years. Can you talk a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing in music? Because I think that's really, really important to kind of establish, you know, how you kind of got involved in this. And we'll talk a little bit about how you got involved with Parliament Funkadelic and all that, but specifically about your childhood and your parents and your upbringing in music. Well, I, I was raised by a concert pianist uh, who, who, who ran a piano school out of the house. So Bedrosian Piano School was, you know, a part of my life growing up. So me and my two sisters, we, we had lessons from about age three or four on, classical training, practicing every day, doing competitions, doing recitals. And so uh, piano was like a regular part of my life. Uh, there were three pianos at least playing in my house at pretty much all times a day. So that was, that was my upbringing and, and uh, you know, did that for about 18 years, real strict classical training while also playing in bands and doing all kinds of stuff like that. And then also my, my dad was a choir director and my mom was the organist at a local church. So we all had to like sort of enroll in the choir and do different choir jobs for them, church gigs um, with them on, you know, once or twice a week. So I was also singing all the time, playing all the time. So it was just, uh, yeah, we were kind of eating, breathing, drinking music from a real early age. Now, you know, and one of the things that I, I found intriguing, obviously, culturally, is that you have a strong Armenian background, You were, but you were born in Massachusetts. A lot of people have deep heritage and culture, but when they're born in the States, they kind of lose, maybe lose a little bit of touch with that. And people just don't celebrate or honor their culture. And in many cases, don't do anything to embrace it or incorporate it into their lives. And, and let me just go ahead and apologize ahead of time if I say something stupid or ignorant. I'm really good at that. But a couple of questions here. Yeah. How did your family establish that commitment that you uh, you apparently have now? And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the charitable work that you've got going on right now. But how did your family start establishing that commitment to that heritage? Was it through church or family traditions at home? Uh, well, yeah. So, uh, so I'm descended from uh, Armenian genocide survivors from Harpet province, which was like the slaughterhouse province of Turkey during the genocide. And I lost about 40 or 50 members of my family to the genocide. And the survivors were very few. And my family, as most Armenian families from Western Armenia, so it came over with nothing. And uh, my great-grandfather, um, you know, he was raising money uh, to help Armenian refugees and all kinds of stuff like that. He was an activist in the Armenian community way, way back. And I was blessed to have uh, you know, three survivors helped raise me. Uh, one of my, my great, great aunt, another great aunt and my grandfather were all survivors and, and I grew up with them. So, uh, that was instilled in me from a very young age, uh, as it is with most kids who are descendants of survivors. 
it's not so much something that you have to try to do. It's just a part of your DNA. So it's just, it's just uh, innate, you know? So uh, it definitely informs, you know, my cultural self and uh, my moral self and like where I see myself as a human being as far as helping everybody. Because I think when you come from one of those types of cultures that's been, you know, deprived of freedom, deprived of life, deprived of sanctuary, you always, I think you end up looking towards the whole world as uh, we need to help each other type of thing. You know what I mean? So I think that's sort of uh, the foundation for my, my charitable work and, you know, why I feel strongly about that. I mean, I understand that, that you are also a certified historian of Middle Eastern studies. So, so tell me a little bit about that. I mean, you went above and beyond to embed yourself into Middle Eastern studies. And obviously you gave us a really significant reason for that. And I guess, so I guess this is a kind of a twofold question. You know, what was the purpose of going after that degree? And was there ever an intent to utilize that somehow, you know, possibly as a backup plan if the musical career didn't pan out? I mean, what was the, the whole reasoning for, for really kind of going after that degree? Yeah, like majoring in music didn't really appeal to me because I was already running two or three successful bands. I was a full-on producer by the time I was a freshman in college, producing other acts and running a production label, working at various studios all over New England, gigging like way more than your average teenager. And so that just didn't appeal. It didn't make sense to me for what I was doing. I was already in the industry, if you will. Something else, <clears throat> just something else. I've always been in the arts in general, music, art, history. Those are kind of like the big ones for me, you know, and um, Middle Eastern studies was you know, part of my culture, something I knew a lot about, something I studied up on as a kid all the way through college. So it just, it kind of felt like a no brainer because I'd already done like 18 really strict classical years of classical training. I've, I've done jazz training and I'd already started you know, since age 11 or 12, my sort of formal self-defunct training before even being in the band. So to me, it just made more sense, you know, at the time. And, and, uh, and I'm actually glad I did because I think that, like, sometimes you get pigeonholed in certain instances. And I think it just kind of, like, added complexity to my, uh, to my foundation. So tell me a little bit about the benefit that you have set up for the Armenians of Kassab. I mean, for those that don't know Kassab, if I'm pronouncing the, the town uh, correctly, is a small Armenian town in Syria that has kind of found itself in the middle of a battle that's been going on since like 2014. And it's actually the only Armenian town in Syria. Again, if I'm if correct me if I'm wrong. But I, I want you to kind of share your passion for the people in this town. I know you kind of tapped on it a little bit earlier, but uh, and exactly what you're doing or, or trying to do and, and how we can help. We actually have a link to the CD Baby mm -hmm. thing that you're doing. But kind of tell me a little bit about this, about what you're doing here. Yeah, so I started doing that, that digital single dedicated to the Armenians of Kassab back in 2014 during the uh, occupation by various jihadi groups and ISIS at one point. But it's not the only Armenian town in Syria. There's actually several settlements in Syria, but it's like the only one that sort of preserves from Ottoman times because it didn't fall prey to the Turks during the genocide that fell on the other side of the border. So like Armenia used to be like a, a much bigger country than it is now. And so as a result, you know, I love that uh, old adage used by uh, the Mexican population saying we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. 
kind of the same thing for the Armenians. So we've ended up in disparate communities all over the Middle East, the South Caucasus, Anatolia. So I extended it to Artsakh, also known as Karabakh, because Armenia went through a terrible war with Azerbaijan in the uh, in in uh, 2020, 2021. So uh, my Exaltation album, my last Secret Army album uh, that I put out in 2020, uh, pro uh, proceeds from that also go towards Armenian relief efforts from that war. So it's uh, not just in Kassab. Kassab is sort of in a better position than it was in 2014, for sure. But uh, in the enclave of Artsakh, which lies surrounded by the nation of Azerbaijan, which is largely uh, hostile pretty much to the Armenian people, uh, I've dedicated most of my relief efforts towards that area for the last couple of years because of the war and the, uh, the ongoing sort of reconstruction after the war uh, ever since the war's end. So that's sort of the, the majority of the work that I'm doing right now in, in uh, terms of the Armenian relief. Now, all of the proceeds go to support the Armenians in, in Syria. So it, it just kind of for people who just are curious, like myself, I mean, exactly how does that work? How do you get how do you get the money that you're making from this to them? And uh, and what is it? What is the money used for? Yeah. So like a, a, I've worked with a few different aid groups. The main one I work with is the Armenian General Benevolent Union. They've been around since like 19... 16, something like that. They're one of the main aid organizations for transporting food stuff, aid, everything from jackets and boots to food and supplies, mostly to families, families and communities in need. And uh, they've been doing it since the genocide. So they're really the best one for me to work with. I also worked with Armenia Funds during the war, uh, but I haven't worked with them since the war. But during the war effort, our, the worldwide Armenian population was kind of mobilized and trying to send as much money out to help the Republic of Artsakh and to help the Republic of Armenia during that time. Uh, but for the Kassab single, yeah, all the proceeds go towards uh, the Armenians in Kassab through the AGBU, which once it reaches a certain point of money, then I always just send a check to the AGBU uh, to their relief efforts. And, they, and, they, uh, and then you specify what area that you want the relief to go to. So that's basically how it works. Oh, fantastic. All right. It's kind of funny because um, we're like family. You don't know this because uh, I'm actually born and raised in Massachusetts, too. I'm from the north. And it's killing me in this interview because you have a clear accent from Boston and I don't. Now, if anybody ever wondered, you can hear the difference now. I don't sound like it. That's what a Boston accent sounds like. <laughs> One of the things is uh, you're a massive uh, classical pianist. So as a pianist, I'm, I'm just like, I was blown away by how you won so many competitions. By the time you were eight, you were already competing with people half your age or twice your age, excuse me. Um, so obviously that's child prodigy, you know, but around 11, you're drawn to, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you were drawn to Parliament Funkadelic when you were around 11 years old. And um, that is so far away from classical. So why Parliament? Like what, what was it from being classically trained and being in there and living that that would make you go, ooh, that's what I like? You know, it's interesting because like to me, it's actually not as far away as some people think. You know, as a classical musician, I could hear Bernie Worrell's classical training in the music right away from when I first heard any of those songs, like Make My Funk to P-Funk or Aqua Boogie or any of that mm. stuff. I was I was immediately drawn to 
the classical stylism and it wasn't just stylized there was real real rudiments and real things he was doing in there it wasn't just you know it wasn't just a gimmick he truly married like, like european orchestral music with african-american music in a way that like has never really been done before or since and so i could hear it i could hear it in 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 the songs in the music uh even the most synthesized stuff you know it, it's in there and so that was one of the things that drew me to it and, and also the fact that uh you know i was already a working musician from around that age as well so i was playing in clubs i played everything from from world music of all different types as you know being from massachusetts very diverse there's all kinds of different populations of people um i played in many folk bands from different world groups i played in uh again classical and church i did jazz i played in metal groups i played i worked with hip-hop groups writing hooks and writing like the music for their track when i finally heard parliament funkadelic to me that was like that's the that's sort of the the the, the feeling of all of them i was getting something from all of that uh, but it yeah. was satisfying the need i had as a musician much more than any of those constituent parts so it was really special for me, you know, to feel that in the music. And, and immediately from, from when I first started hearing it, I wanted to study it. I wanted to understand it. And so, like, I really applied that classical training to the music, you know, without the ego. Like, there's a lot of classical people that they've got the ability to learn anything, but they just won't apply it if it's something that's not what right. they think is of a certain level or whatever. But P-Funk mm -hmm. is its own level, its own whole world. And, like, to talk about something Christopher you said at the very beginning about the passing of uh, Mr. Simon, Mr. Calvin Simon. Um, but the band's really, I mean, it's been around since 55, really 55, 56. So it's about 66 or 67 years old. And it's the longest running American music. It's the longest running popular music group in the world of all time. You know, right. uh, only, only jazz orchestra and gospel groups have more longevity than that. So in popular music, there's nothing that really compares to it. And once I started seeing the vastness of that, I always liked that kind of stuff, epic stuff, vast stuff. You know, I always liked big worlds, lots of characters, lots of songs, big cannons. You know, I like Star Wars. I like, you know, I like things like that where there's just a lot to get Lord of the Rings or whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> I got the He-Mans behind me. You can see those like fantasy. And P-Funk had that sci-fi and that fantasy and all that stuff. It had story, it had characters, uh, which, which has a lot of longevity to it. So all this stuff really intrigued me and just immediately, that was the band I wanted to be with. I said, you know, as an 11 year old, I'm gonna be the keyboard player for P-Funk when I grow up. You know, that's what I wanted to do. I just stuck with that. So to me, that's one of the reasons I've stayed so long too. And, and also because, I mean, thankfully they like, George likes what I do and everything, thankfully. But my longevity, my self longevity comes from the fact that once I got there, it's like, well, this is what I always wanted to do. You know, some people look at certain things as stepping stones. To me, the stepping stones were to this. That's sort of what's had me here. So, so to follow that passion, you, you ended up ultimately creating a band called Sweet Mother Child. Where did that band name come from? And, and tell me, tell us about some band, some highlights from the time then as well. Yeah, I don't know where the name came from, but it was uh, uh, me and a bunch of my friends from Massachusetts and New Hampshire. It eventually became like an 18-piece funk band. And we were around for six years. We had six albums. We, uh, we worked hard. We, we played a lot in the Northeast. It was big funk sound, you know, with horns and 
lots of guitars, lots of instrumentation, lots of operatic vocals, lots of production. We were really into, you know, we were very much influenced by by Parliament Funkadelic. That's you know, that's that was a big influence on us. And so that's what Sweet Mother Child was. And we just, you know, a lot of uh college shows, college parties, that kind of thing. Uh one big highlight I remember is that the longest show I've ever played in my life, even to this day, was a Sweet Mother Child show. We played nine and a half hours what? Uh, what? at a party up at University of New Hampshire. Nine and a half hour show. And I only took a break from singing and playing keyboards for two songs to let the drummer take a break. I played drums. So that was, <laughs> so that was the, the longest show I ever played. So, yeah, Sweet Mother Child, good memories. And I still... I'm still close with all the guys in the band, and we still work together and hang out and stuff. There's a, a, a big family of people, so it's really cool. Well, you know, some of the, the longest shows that I've ever been to have been Parliament Funkadelic shows. I think uh, the first time I, I've ever, I ever saw Parliament Funkadelic was in, uh, which regretfully was in the 90s, and it was Return of the Mothership. And I, I remember getting there, and, you know, they, they said, they said the show was going to start at eight o'clock and, you know, being a huge fan of funk and R and B and soul music, I was very used to culturally the show's just not starting on time like ever. And, and I get there and then at eight Oh one, they started. And I was like shocked. I was like, Oh, this is fantastic. And, uh, Bootsy Collins and the brides of Funkenstein opened up and then parliament, uh, came on after and literally, it was 1230. So four and a half hours later, and they were still going. And I said, I, I, I feel like I got what I paid for. Maybe I, <laughs> I feel like I need to go home now. <laughs> Cause I was like, this is four and a half hours. This is insane. And uh, yeah, so I, I completely understand that. Uh, yeah. It's funk is one of those types of things that man if you if you get into the groove you can carry it forever and uh man somebody that perfected that <laughs> george is one man. big long jam session that's that's what makes funk it's a oh jam my gosh. all the time but kind of talking about for sweet uh mother child for a second you know for a long period of time i, I was reading some of your uh, your bio stuff you know it says you were the band director the keyboardist the lead vocalist you're even the drummer for a little bit, arranger, manager, booking agent, frontman, lyricist, and chief songwriter. At, at any point, did you say to yourself, "Hey, maybe I should hand the reins off before some of this to someone else," or are you just kind of like the ultimate control freak? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a little of both, a little of both for sure. Uh, but, but, but definitely was a foundation for what would go on after for me because once i got in with parliament funkadelic i used to do the gary Scheider style gary always say you know i'm in everybody's band so like i played in everybody's band I was, at one point i was in like 13 bands you know um in my early years with p-funk so in addition to being in george's band you know and, and a lot of times i found myself in bands with really big discographies so it would be like you know this band has 300 songs and this band plays 180 songs and this band you know Every band I was in had like a dozen albums. So uh, that's just something I got used to, just doing a lot, you know, publishing, writing, recording, practicing nonstop, trying to get better, trying to be the best I could be, performing and helping other artists and producing other artists and doing all kinds of stuff like that, as well as writing and, and other endeavors that I got into later. 
Yeah, it was. Yeah, control freak. Sure, I can, I'll, I'll take that too. <laughs> So, so I know this is why everybody's kind of tuning in here because everybody wants to talk parliament. And, um, but I wanted to kind of get a little bit of that background information because I think it's really, really important. I, I think I'm just, I'm very intrigued with uh, everything that, you know, you're doing uh, the Armenians in Syria. Uh, it's, I mean, just, just hats off to you. Uh, I know it's, it's a lot of work. There are so many communities and, and towns that, are trapped in the middle of this ongoing just things can just pop up in an instant. It's just like every, every time you flip on the news on CNN, there's something new, some, some kind of new uprising or uh, it's, it's, it's just insane. And I, I can't imagine trying to live a normal life up there, not knowing whether or not your kids are safe from one minute to the next. I mean, you can't, you know, it's nothing's normal. There, there, there is, there's no normalcy in your life and that's just gotta be, uh, so hats off to you, you know, you know, right. much love and appreciation. So anything that we can do to kind of help that along, we absolutely will. So let, let's kind of go to parliament for a second, because really want to know right out of the gate, I just need to know how you got connected with George and became friends with him and how that actually, how do you go from your first band, sweet mother child into parliament funkadelic? I mean, it's kind of like you went from, <laughs> you went from where everybody is as, as an aspiring musician to where everybody wants to aspire to in like that. <laughs> How exactly did that whole progression work? Well, you know, as a, as a teenager in my attempt to try to figure out a way to, to get my music to George, to get, to get heard, you know, I had uh, gone online to, to one of these um, interviews with Gary Mudbone Cooper, great Mudbone Cooper from Parliament Funkadelic and asked him the question, you know, what should I do? What would you do? You know, and he said, you know, just try to get in front of George, try to get near George. And uh, so that became sort of my goal all the way to the point where there was this contest in 97, I want to say, where you could make the bed sheet for George, when George used to wear the big bed sheet, right? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I had an artistic background, painting and stuff like that. So I painted this real cool One Nation flag. I had rump of steel skin on the back. I had the aliens and song lyrics and it was very multicolored. It was real cool. And um, you got to, you know, you win the contest, you deliver the, the bed sheet to Georgie, wears it at the concert, you know? So the one I won out for was uh, Providence, Rhode Island. And I brought him the bed sheet and he wore it at the show. And I also dropped off my music with him and some of the guys in the band and uh, maintained relationships with those guys all through the years to the point where when I was still in college, they were inviting me down uh, to Florida to record in the studio where George worked. Uh, it was in Monticello, Florida at the time. And I started doing studio work for George while I was still in school. And, you know, they liked what I did, production stuff, keys, programming, drums, writing, singing, all kinds of different stuff. Then uh, an opportunity arose uh, for me to do some technician work. Again, while I was still in college, I was still in school. I, I text for George on two different Northeastern tours when I was still, again, I, I might have been 20, maybe. And then after that, you know, he said, finish school, finish school. That was what George always said. So I, you know, finished school, moved down to Florida after I was done, moved, left New England, moved down to Florida, and uh, just started working in the studio, trying to get work, trying to do whatever I could do. And a position opened up on the road uh, for technician work programming Bernie's keys and stuff like that. And so I took the job. But on the first day, 
Bernie had me play. So he's like, I'm taking you in as my protege. You know, we got real close. And I got really close with a lot of the guys. Billy Bates and I were really close from the very beginning. Uh, he really, and we used to play chess together on the bus a lot. He really, uh, a lot of these guys took me under their wing and really helped me with a lot of stuff. Gary Scheider, Blackbird McKnight, Lives Curry, Cliff Payne, Cordell Boogie Massoon, so many others, so many, so many. Uh, Benny Cowan, Greg Thomas, and uh, Michael Hampton, and 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 they all uh, imparted a lot to me. And I studied with them because we're on the road, you know, 200, sometimes 300 days a year. And, uh, you know, Bernie took me on as his protege, you know, and I studied under Bernie for several years. And, uh, and of course, George, I mean, learn, continue to learn from George. I mean, he's right down the street. He lived right, right down from me. Um, continue to learn uh, constantly from him and from, and from the guys that are thankfully with us. That was sort of how I came in, you know what I mean? And it was just thrown immediately into the thing. They knew that I had studied the music and I was passionate about it. And, and I was adamant about knowing as much as I could. I didn't want to skate, you know, I wasn't trying to skate by. This wasn't my second favorite band. This wasn't my fourth favorite band. You know, this was my, the band. That This was the band for me, you know what I mean? So, like, I was, uh, I was, I was um, prepping myself really hard early on to do this. So that's sort of how I got in. That was my, that was my in process. From what I understand, I think you, I'd read somewhere that uh, a friend of yours, Jerome Rogers, actually played a pretty integral role in, in how you would eventually be able to really kind of get in there. What, what was his involvement with kind of helping to this process along? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Jerome, actually. I should have mentioned him as one of the first, really. He, uh, I studied under Jerome for several years as well, and we even lived together for many years. Um, both on the road and off the road. Good, good friend of mine. And uh, we worked together on several projects. I actually played drums in his rock band before I was even in P-Funk for, you know, the Church of High Voltage. And we played in other bands together, too. Jerome and I were writing partners for some years and good, good friends. He's just a great, a great buddy. And we played side by side in P-Funk on opposite sides of the stage for over a decade, more maybe a decade and a half at least. Um, so yeah, Jerome is very foundational influence on my, my playing. And I have to say too, probably the baddest organist anybody could ever hear. A lot of people don't know that. It's one of the finest organists you could ever, ever check out, you know? Um, but yeah, Jerome was a big, a big influence on me, a big part of my coming in. Brian wanted to know, did you ever play with Amp Fiddler in the P-Funk band? He's amping him go way back. Yes. In fact, I first met Amp in Stuttgart in 2004 when uh, he was doing his album that he put out in 03 or 04, I think, The Ghetto Fly. They opened up for us, and he really imparted some really great knowledge to me, and we had a really nice time in Germany before the show. He and I got to chat, and then uh, started a friendship from then. Yeah, we did play together. Uh, in 2015 and 16, Amp came back. And it was Amp and myself playing on opposite sides of the stage for that period. And I love playing with Amp. I, I like the way we play together. I think he does too. And we have a nice rapport. I've always, I actually just talked to him recently, needed some information for this book I'm writing. But I uh, just talked to Amp. And yeah, he's a, a magnificent keyboard player and, and a good friend. Yeah, we have played together. He's great. What book are you writing? So, so I'm <laughs> writing the authorized P-Funk Song Personnel Encyclopedia, 1955 to 2021. It's 610 pages. 
I'm just shopping publishers right now. Spent much of the pandemic working on it, but this is something I've been doing for like 18 years. Just like, just more than 18 years since I was in high school, really. Like writing down who sang on what, who played on what, and that's literally what the book is. Other than the introduction, well, forward the information on. There's a section on process, a section on what's omitted, what's kept in. But the main part of the book, basically chronologically by group, every P every song that canonically be um considered canonically p-funk and uh and every song and who played and who sang on those songs it's going to dispel a lot of myths and put to bed a lot of a lot of controversy regarding i think that's like one of the biggest things that p-funk fans like to talk about debate and argue about and so it's, it's almost completely drawn from primary sources again this is me using that history degree um legitimation and primary sources are the most important part of the whole thing so I'm drawing off somewhere, some 70 interviews, however many hundred hours of interviews, including over 15 hours of interviews with George, detailing who played on these songs, who was on these songs, down to the the, the detail and minutia, very, very extreme details. So uh, it'll All be right, coming so, out so this year, and I highly encourage people to check it out when it does. Well, let's touch base after we get offline because I'm so, pretty I'm pretty sure we got we have strong connections for that because a good yep. friend of ours is Dwayne Tudal, uh, who's done two of the volumes for the the Prince books that did the uh, Sign of the Times Air Studio Sessions and the Purple Rain Air Studio Sessions, which is pretty much the same exact approach that you just uh, explained, but obviously talking about with Prince, who played on what, who did what, what was going on that day, what. You know what was omitted, what was kept, and and all those different types of things. So the publisher that he works with obviously is very, very near and dear to that type of that type of subject matter. So yeah, you and I will touch base after this is over, and we'll see if we can kind of connect some things. And and uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely, yes. fantastic, absolutely. Um, and before we go deeper here and get away from this timeline, you also worked with Bo Diddley. Tell me about that experience. I, I need to know about this. Well, like, you know, it's funny. I didn't actually really do anything with him. But what had happened was after I first started working with George, I had received a call from their camp. They wanted me to go on the road with them before I was even on the road with George. So I was actually offered the gig with Bo Diddley first. I was a sophomore in college and I decided to finish school. I was doing terribly, too. You know, one, there's another me in another dimension that, like, decided not to finish college and just joined Bo Diddley's band and never ended up in P-Funk. Um, but but uh, I decided to stay on, you know, I was like, well, that's, you know, that'd be cool. That would definitely be awesome. He's amazing, and that's a huge pioneer of rock and roll American music as we know it. But I was I was here to be in, in, in George's band. So, um, so I, you know, I, I, I stayed the course. But that was a that was an almost you know that was a choose your own adventure that was a what if. <laughs> oh, taking me back with the choose your own adventure. How old are you, by the way? I'm 41. I just turned 41. Oh, congratulations! Okay, I think somebody had asked that earlier, but I was yeah. Choose your own adventure took me back. <laughs> I know it took you back too, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> uh all right so back to the timeline after coming on board with parliament and this for me is the standout most obvious question for me and i, I think if uh, people are honest 
this is probably a really obvious question for a lot of people as well. How does a white kid <laughs> get inducted into a notoriously historically black band? I mean, not it's obviously that your talent won over George, but what is what is that pressure like? Because not only is Parliament um, if we, just for lack of a better term, you know, historically, but black band, I mean, they are all about that. They're all about the culture. They're all about, it's just, I mean, this was a focus for them. This was about empowerment. This was just, you know, this was a whole thing for them. So how did you get involved in this world? I'm sorry, I, I, I don't even know how to even properly phrase this question, but I mean, what is that pressure like? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think you touched on a lot of it in, in, in an important way. Uh, somebody told me once, oh, it must have been harder because you're not African-American. But I don't think that's necessarily true. I, I think uh, I think uh, the people involved in Parliament and Funkadelic, the, the foundational people, are much more open-minded than even your average youth, you know, your average person that's half their age or a third their age. So... I think that can kind of go out the window. And the other thing, too, you know, growing up in New England, uh, primarily Irish community, being Armenian, I never really thought of myself as necessarily, I mean, I'm, I'm white-skinned or whatever, but I never necessarily, you know, compared to the people I grew up with, I wasn't really considered white. And then Armenians, we just consider ourselves Armenian. We don't really say we're white. We just say we're Armenian, you know? So, like, right, yeah. uh, for me... It was a lot about empowerment too, you know, um, coming from a place of slavery, coming from a place of of being put down, degradation and hatred, and and those types of hatred last all the way to today, you know. And so, like for me, playing this music, the feel and the freedom is empowering for me too. And then, you know, there's always been a few guys, you know, there's Ron Bykowski you know, who was a big part of Funkadelic and the Cosmic Swap, standing on the verge of, he was Polish, you know, and uh, Bruce, I'm not even the first Armenian in the band, you know, Bruce Nazarian, the great Bruce Nazarian, who played guitar and bass, he played mm. up all up on a lot of those bride, uh, Never Buy Sexes from a Cowboy and, and Felipe Wynn stuff and a lot of P-Funk stuff, you know, before me. Um, and, you know, the great Rick Gardner from the Horny Horns. So, I mean, there's been lots of I'm not the only one or whatever. Now, is it is it more of a challenge? I don't know. I don't know if it necessarily is, but I think that like with the feel, with this feel of this music, it's something that you can train to get better at, but it is innate. Either You either have a, a, some of it to, to base something off of or you don't. And of course, it's, it, it comes out of the African-American musical tradition. That that never loses its focus or its foundation, of course. But you know, I uh, I'm something of an anomaly, I guess. You know, uh, but but this was always the music that spoke to me, as far as American, as far as American music goes. This was the music that spoke to me. So it was just intriguing to me. I mean, because I know how protective he is over over the brand, and and um. I know that George was obviously receptive of it. At any point in time, did you ever feel unwelcome or kind of feel like, yeah, you're going to need to fit in here a little bit? I mean, did you ever, you never felt like that at any, any point in time during the joining them? And I don't mean, and no, no, definitely not. And, and not to sound too contrarian in some ways, 
I was one of the ones who was sort of welcomed in with open arms the most in that era, in a way. As far as with the old heads, and I'm talking about in the band specifically, um, mm-hmm. uh, with the guys like like Scheider and them, you know, because uh, yeah. they really, really saw something in me way before. And, um, and so, no, nothing but love, nothing but attention and education, knowledge and compassion and patience and camaraderie and brotherhood. That, that's really, I had nothing but that. And then with the fandom, you know, with the P-Funk fans, they're, they're going to always take longer than George to catch on because George is ahead of all of us. He's got ideas before we're even thinking about anything that he's, he's on a whole other wavelength. So it takes the fans a while, but, you know, I noticed within a few years they were starting to say, who is that guy? Who's the guy with the beard? Who's the white guy? Who's the, you know, he's doing something. He, he, he sounds like Bernie or he do this or he whatever. And so, you know, that builds and that grows over time. And all you do is, Keep your head down to the grindstone. You work, you work hard, and and you won't have people talking about you or, or shutting you out or whatever. You know, you if you can be the best one in the room, it don't matter who you are. You know, they 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 care about yeah what's coming out of you. You know, that's the that's the beauty. That's the that's the real outer is the inner. You know. To, to yeah. So let's like talk about sounds like some Bernie would have said. <laughs> so let's talk about that first night that you played with them live in front of a live audience not in the studio but you're actually on stage with parliament funkadelic i I imagine just probably in it's probably burned in your brain the the time the date the location exactly you know how you felt how the night went tell me about that first night playing live with parliament funkadelic well it's weird because i feel like i have a few firsts so like my very, very, very first show playing, where I'm playing like the whole show was September of 2003. And I was playing Fender Rhodes electric piano the whole night on a Fender Rhodes. And, uh, and I do remember, and I remember just feeling like it just kind of went by. It was like, it just went by, it happened. It was great. I think it was good. It was a different time. I, you know, I was, I was you know, on some other plane, but I, but I think that, uh, I think it was cool. And then there was like the very first time playing um, on like a on like a tour, if you will, where there was like a few dates in a row. That felt like a first too, because we were sort of out to do the thing we were supposed to do. And then I also remember my first time having to play the whole sh- kind of the whole show and all the arrangements and everything. And that w- I remember that was in Finland, so like my first time doing like the full show with a full rig all the songs, all the parts, so on and so forth. It was me and Bernie for my first European tour. I was 23 years old, coming in at 22, as far as being on the payroll, on the road. But uh, yeah, early 23 and and finding out, you know, there is no set list or uh, which, which boggles people's minds to this day. You know, it's just, it's just, we know the first song, maybe a few minutes before we go on and, and that's it. And then it's just, Figure, you know, watch, pay attention, as they say, pay attention. Yeah. So basically, uh, from everything you've said, clearly, um, you really push. Like your, your whole thing is work to be the best, you know, get it going. And so knowing that type of personality, just like you said, if you're the best in the room, you know, nobody can say anything. You just keep working. But certainly there had to be at least one or two 
bad days at work. You know, so the question is, um, what was probably one of in your heart, you know, regardless of all the support and love you're getting from everyone you're working with, but in your heart, what was probably one of the, the worst nights that you had playing? Just like, what was wrong? Like, what happened? Well, I, I can definitely think of like random times where I just was frustrated. And sometimes it has to do with the sound or whatever. But I think the most, probably the worst day at work, and I think it was all of our worst days too, is we were doing one of these uh, soul music fests where it was like a bunch of sort of the nostalgia groups, if you will, taking nothing away from those, but that's you know, sort of what it was. And George doesn't like to do a lot of those because like he always kind of looked more towards being a Hendrix, say, than, than a Little Richard, if, if that makes sense, or, or a Chuck Berry. Um, taking nothing away from the latter, you know, but as far as culturally, like what he's trying to be, influentially what he's trying to be. So he mostly stayed away from these shows, but we did a series of them at this one point around 2011, 2012, and there was two in the Carolinas we did, and it was like, I don't know if it was, they didn't want us to, I don't know, I can't speculate on that, but they went, the other bands went over. And so we ended up playing literally five minutes i've never seen this before we played five whole minutes and they cut us off so we went on i i, I looked at the time we went on you know it was like 907 we went off it was like 912. <laughs> I was like what and and it was because the other bands whatever used up all the time or something happening you know, festival things get backed up but i've never experienced it on that level on that to that extreme, you know what I mean? So I can say, and, and you know, my longest show with George was seven hours and 45 minutes. So I can say the longest <laughs> show I played with him was seven hours and 45 minutes. And the shortest is probably five minutes. <laughs> but I was pissed that day. I've seen a couple of people here that have been asking Prince related questions. And I guess I didn't really think about this and it's not in any of my, my list of of questions believe it or not i normally always i know i always put in a prince question somewhere <laughs> but you know you are actually you've been involved with george for like a, a pretty long time so you you've you've probably my guess is that you may have had an opportunity to cross paths with prince at some point in time or at least he he knows who you are or in uh in vicky's case she says uh Prince had never tried to steal him from George. <laughs> so I, I, I guess it's a, a twofold question. Did you ever get an opportunity to actually meet Prince? I guess your thoughts about him as, as an artist and, and, you know, whether or not you, you've crossed paths as like George has many, many times. Yeah. Well, you know, my first sort of dealing uh, or being around Prince was uh, 2004 or five, I think four at a festival in Atlanta, actually, where you guys are at one of the music, no, it wasn't Music Midtown, but it was something else put on by Aquafina. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the festival was. Um, mm -hmm. But he stood behind my rig, stood right behind me the whole show, and uh, had me nervous as hell. Like, I don't really, like, I kind of feel like, oh man, Prince is right behind me. And then like, I looked again, like an hour later, I'm like, oh, he's still there. Like, <laughs> you know, like, damn. And uh, never really talked to him that day. And then, you know, seeing him again when he came to see us, he would come to see us. Like, we'd be at shows, and you might have, you know, the Chili Peppers come out, Flea and them, Chad, Anthony and them, or, you know, Fishbone, those guys, Norwood, Angelo, they come out. And, 
and uh, Prince be another one of those ones that would would you know come out a lot. Uh, we you know we played at the sort of famous clubs in Minneapolis whenever we were there, you know, and you'd see a lot of people from that camp. Never really worked with him specifically, but I did work quite extensively with the great Sue Ann Carwell, who was like really one of the first um, female singers from that camp to kind of be signed. I think she was signed to Warner Brothers early, like in 80, 79 or 80, from his camp, from the same camp that Prince is in in Minneapolis, you know, and I worked with her um extensively for a couple of years uh she's a fantastic singer and i loved being in a band playing with her um that was the that was the closest thing to a minneapolis connection i think i ever really had but but definitely saw prince a lot and he definitely was was watching me a couple of times i can say that <laughs> yeah. I, I can't even imagine performing and having prince just kind of standing over you watching you but i mean w- you know, we showed that clip at the beginning of just, you know, just, just kind of just watching some of this. I mean, you know, when you hear the music, you just don't realize everything that's happening and everything that's going on and how many different sounds come from different rigs and how you're kind of, I mean, certain songs like in the case of Atomic Dog, uh, which is what that clip is from, you know, there's like multiple keyboards that are are happening it's not just switching voices on a single keyboard it's like there's something going on over here and something going on over here and it's i i can't even imagine and the efficiency at which <laughs> it's you're like darting from thing to thing and just it's just it's insane to me uh just kind of it was just it just just watching all of it go down and i i can't imagine doing all that with prince staring over your shoulder uh that's just <laughs> the, the, the stress it's just it's the, st- the stress it's just got to be unreal but you know you've had so many incredible moments including performing for president barack obama which is obviously a massive honor in itself but to play to play for obama with george clinton and sly stone that's just got to be crazy in itself. Tell me about tell me about that. Tell me about that night or that well, event. We didn't. I mean, we. I mean, we played. We played for the Obama inauguration. We played for a few of the inaugural balls, but I don't think we actually played for Obama straight up himself. I don't think he was in one of the buildings we played at, and it was like in D.C. that night. There were like several big parties, and we were just being kind of escorted to, from inaugural party to inaugural party so like one of them was the chief of staff and then another one was like the the general five-star generals and then another one was the vice president and then you know so biden had we went to one i think he went to his and then uh there was a few different things it was kind of a whirlwind that night it was kind of crazy now some of we we have played for where they were in the audience that i can tell you about is vladimir putin we played for putin <laughs> one time um on his uh on his television station in Russia, first channel, um, we were invite. He invited three American bands that he wanted to be there, that were like his choices, and um, one of them was us. One of them was the Village People, and <laughs> and the third one was. And what was, the third? It was a group from the eighties, like late new wave. Oh, I can't remember right now, but interesting choices anyway. And uh, we played on his on his uh, television station, first channel, 
not even channel one, first channel. Like this is the first channel ever, you know. And uh, <laughs> and we played uh, played on yeah for Putin in in Saint Petersburg, his city, on like a diplomatic visa. It was crazy, and that wasn't our only time in Russia. But like a lot of things like that, I think, in our American fans don't know sort of our international push, you know. And our international fans are always like, oh, I would love to see a P Funk show in America. And we're like, man, we're happy to be playing out here in Bali, Japan, or, you know, Le Reunion, wherever that, that we've been, all these places. But it's interesting, the, the perspective from different fans around the world and, like, how that, how that plays into their experience with the show. I'm on a tangent, but, you know, so. No, it, it's fantastic. Those are the stories that we want to hear. Uh, Letty Beeson gives you a shout-out. said, late funk brother Razor gives you high praises. Yeah, I tell you what. He was a great keyboard player. Boosie's rubber band, Palmer Funkadelic, Funk All Stars. I had the opportunity. I played with Razor. I was in the band with Razor for four shows, like four shows. At one point, when I first joined the band, there were four keyboard players. So it was Bernie Worrell, Razor, Jerome Rogers, and myself for a very brief period. There were four of us. Wow. And yeah, a fantastic player, amazing. And a big influence on me as well, of course. You know, and now during that inauguration thing that you were talking about earlier, um, Sly Stone was was playing with you guys, or was how was he in the mix for for that event? So Sly has performed with us many times. I'm happy to say I was honored every time he sat in with us. He sat in with us playing keyboards. He sat in with us singing. He sat in with us playing guitar. He sat in with us playing keyboards and singing and guitar. Um, at the same, I mean, he's done, he's an amazing entertainer to this day. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. He must've been there at that show too, but there was a lot of shows in that little period. I want to say, uh, 2008, 2007 to like 2010. And he was doing a lot of shows, not a lot, but several shows with us. And, uh, but the one that sticks out the most actually is in Barack Obama's hometown in Chicago at the African Fest. And Sly came with his guitar, and we did higher. And thank you for letting me be myself again. And it was like, like Sly from like 66, 67. It was crazy. He came out there front, you know, up front with the guitar and like just singing at the people. I was blown away, to be honest with you. That's like one of my most high points with anybody, like, like outside of the P-Funk. I mean, we, it was with P-Funk, but just anybody from, you know, in the funk world or whatever at large, Sly is part of the canon, really, because they're so intertwined with George and their careers. But, but uh, that was a huge highlight for me. Yeah, he's done he's done several shows with us. Yeah, that's actually surprising because I, I really didn't see much of him. I think the last time I really kind of saw him really do his thing was when he did the uh, duet with Jesse Johnson, Crazy You know, back in '88 or whatever that was, and then he kind of disappeared off of the. You know, and I guess I, I never had the honor of being able to see him actually perform with Parliament Funkadelic or even do anything until he had showed up at, uh, showed up at that one Grammy Awards that was at 2000, whatever that was. And everybody was like, because they hadn't, it's like nobody laid eyes on him in, in decades. And, and all of a sudden there he was with this mohawk and it was just like, wow. Right. Um, and it probably wasn't his, his best, you know, performance or whatever, but I, I kind of feel like, you know, everybody was kind of wondering whether or not he was going to show up. So that's really, 
that's great to hear that he's still got it. He's still out there. He's still killing it. And, um, you know, last I heard he, he, he was, he didn't really have any specific living situation or whatever. He was living in a camper or whatever. Is there any updates on, on Sly? Do you know what's going on with him? Like nowadays? I mean, I, I don't really know too much of the ins and outs of his living situation, anything like that. But uh, he and George are really tight. They stay in touch pretty, pretty regularly. And uh, that's good. And and you know, I was uh, always honored to play with him. I played with him on one of the tracks on uh, "Shake the Gate" uh, called "Yellow Light." That's me and him on the keyboard. And it was just such an honor doing that as a collaboration with him, both of us playing keys. That was like one of my dreams come true right there too and then also that that show in chicago that i'm telling you about where he's playing the guitar and he's up front you can find that you can find that it's out there so i i highly recommend you look for it p-funk and sly you know look it up on a torrent site or on youtube or something just p-funk and sly chicago 2000s or something just look up some keywords you know and it, it's out there and it's just that one song you know and it's it's great yeah, I, I, well, yeah, I definitely will absolutely look it up. You know, I, you know, and it's interesting that you you mentioned that because one of the things I actually had some questions about Bernie's style of playing and how I never really kind of felt like uh, I felt like he was more because you're a classical keyboardist and he's he's a very very creative mind. So the things that he does are just really just nobody else plays that way, you know, but you were able as a classically trained keyboardist, you were actually able to hear something uh, in his style of playing that, you know, maybe for the layman folks like myself, just, you know, probably can't, you know, can't really grasp or really just don't understand completely, totally understand his genius. But who do you feel like are some of the most underrated keyboardists playing in funk music right now? Wow. Well, you know, like, yeah, with Bernie, he really was a classical keyboardist, too. I mean, every every bit as much a classical pianist as I am. It's really? More. That really was his, his, yeah, that was his foundation, his true foundation. And the creative side is just the fact that he was a master, the master maybe of feel, like his feel was unmatched. And a lot of what his training was with me was, you know, just showing me how much of that feel was important. I was always a real feel-based performer when it came to concert performance so that was something that came naturally to me thankfully and i think that's probably what he saw in me from the get-go um besides the fact that we had the same upbringing but he had the exact same kind of training that i had from the same age same same everything as far as that goes so that parallel was really what was the drive and the basis for our, our connection in the first place um but uh today i mean yeah there's plenty of great keyboard players young keyboard players out there across all genres. I mean, the people that I like, there's a lot of people I like that are doing like a mix of what you would consider funk, maybe jazz, R&B, and a few other things, you know what I mean? But um, I love Robert Glasper. I'm a huge fan of Robert Glasper. Uh, yeah. He's been behind me as well a couple times. I've been behind him a couple times at some shows uh, that we've done together. Uh, Corey Henry is another one I love. Uh, same situation yep. he's played he's played with us open for us we've done shows with him uh and done some recent sessions with him as well um and and i i love jacob collier just in general i think he's incredible and there's also an armenian pianist 
uh, that a lot of people know from the jazz world, but he's really just doing like a fusion of a few different things. His name's Tigran Hamasian, and he's nasty, nasty, nasty. Um, those are some of the young guys that I really am into that I've been sort of checking out and saying, wow, it's a nice, uh, got a nice style, nice feel, and just doing something special, doing something his own that's going to be recognized for years to come, I think, you know, so. Yeah, and, and, and a few of which you named are actually on the Funkatopia's 2021 Best Funk of uh bus funk albums of 2021 and so it's obviously you had yours on there as well as uh you know cory henry was actually we i mean it's just amazing so many of the artists that you named are, are on there so uh obviously i do i guess we do have a little bit of an ear for a lot of that a lot of that greatness we're going to talk about that in just a second we're 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 we're, we're closing in here but i i have a couple questions here so i bought tickets to George Clinton's final ever tour with Parliament Funkadelic. <laughs> and this was at the uh, Cobb Energy Arena in uh, Marietta, Georgia, which is uh, just outside of Atlanta. Um, but uh, the sound was atrocious. I think it may have been where the seats were, which were not bad. We were on the floor, but kind of a little bit not quite center. But I, I, I just felt like that this was a moment I, I had to be there because it was going to be George's last show. It was going to be George's last show. So, except it wasn't the last time, N not even a year later, he does another farewell tour with fishbone, miss velvet and blue wolf and galactic. And, and I mean, although I was a little bit annoyed because I spent a lot of money for the last, last tour. And then here we are again with another one, but I did it because this lined up seemed more appropriate for a farewell, like an honor, you know, because you got galactic in the mix and, and all this stuff. And, uh, but now there's talk of another last one. So we need, we need to talk about this a little bit. And I know bands do this all the time, but not like one year after the other. Um, can you kind of give me a little bit of an idea of what's happening with Parliament Funkadelic as far as George is concerned? And uh, if there is any finality in the mix, not that I want him to leave, but I do realize that the man has to retire and has to step back and <laughs> kind of give me a little bit of an idea what's going on. Well, you know, with the Marietta thing, I feel like that might have been actually missed advertised or something that was outside of the organization because uh, i do remember that and i remember somebody questioning it from inside being like why does it say that or something like that so but then when there was that official farewell tour we were all like on the road being like i don't this isn't going to be the farewells <laughs> necessarily and then Next thing you know, there was a press release somewhere in Philadelphia or something where George said, no, I'm, I'm not retiring. I'm, I'm back, you know? So, and I said to him, like, so you're not, you're not retiring. He's like, no, 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 not yet, not yet. And so, you know, the reason why you're seeing this farewell thing on upcoming shows is because those shows were all supposed to be in 2020. They were supposed to be part of a tour that never happened that was labeled as part of the farewell so on and so forth thing which yes at the time of the end of that tour george had decided he would keep going however those were billed as part of the farewell tour so while you're seeing 
the farewell tour of Margate, UK, or Belfast, or wherever, Manchester, wherever, and other places in the States, too, is because those are mostly uh, makeup gigs from COVID time for an extension mm. to that fishbone and dumpster funk tour you're talking about that was just going to extend into 2020, not with all the same acts, but it was going to extend into 2020 as part of the farewell tour. So you're seeing that because this is like a makeup of a makeup because mm. of COVID. So, but no, not really a farewell yet that I can speak of. However, we'll let time determine and George. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically whenever we kind of see, you know, whenever they say farewell tour for parliament, I'll be sure to, to call you and, and, and find out for sure. Yes. If this is actually <laughs> Not that I don't mind seeing parliament Funkadelic. I, I've, I've seen Parliament Funkadelic many times in concerts. I mean, not like many times. There's been plenty of people who have seen it more than me, but I've seen Parliament Funkadelic eight, eight times, I think, seven or eight times. So that that that's still a good amount. And all, every single one of those times was here in Atlanta. I've never seen them anywhere except for Atlanta. And you know, got an opportunity to actually see them at the Fox Theater with the P Funk All Stars and Bootsy Collins came out, and that was fantastic. Lots of lots of great stuff. And and speaking of that, ultimately, correct me if I'm wrong. Parliament Funkadelic, when George does decide that he is going to retire, is supposedly going to be, I guess, handed off to his grandkids. Grandkids. I mean, I love Treze, but you know, the, the rap angle obviously would obviously take this would take Parliament into something that I feel that a lot of the funk purists are going to be maybe a little bit up in arms about. What are your thoughts about the direction that George is going with Parliament or, or the direction that Parliament will go when George steps out? That's probably a better way to put it. Uh, and the second part of that question is if you plan to stay involved once George ev eventually steps down. Well, uh, to answer the second part first, I mean, I'll probably stay involved in some way or another, no matter what. I, I don't see myself necessarily taking myself out of the equation per se. Um as far as what's going to happen when he's gone, I don't really know. I'm that's left up to up, up to better minds than mine, or better uh, soothsayers than me. Because I remember when I first came in on my first day, there was a new production manager that day, so they'd like replace the or the tour manager, something like that. It's a long time ago, but anyway, this guy, business guy, he had a question for me. He's like, "Well, you're young, you've got some insight, you know. Who do you think?" It's going to be able to take the reins for when George goes, when George retires. And <clears throat> this was back in 2003, you know. And um, the people they had in mind then, some of them aren't even with us anymore. So, like, <laughs> far be it from me to tell anybody who I think is going to be the replacement for someone that I see as being irreplaceable. Like, you're not going to get another guy to do what George does because nobody right. does what George does. It's, it's not really like, you You know, I, I said to a few people recently, I was like, who do you know is going to do what George does? Are you going to do what George does? Like, nobody, you know. So, uh, yeah, the band, I think, will continue on. Uh, the direction is going to be up to just how it organically moves, sort of how it's always been, both with George and without. You know, it's an organic creature. It's a living, breathing creature, this band. And over time, I've seen the music, sh 
change, shifts, but not necessarily like change. It just grows, it ebbs and flows like like an organism, you know? And yeah. I see things that move and change within the arrangement. And, you know, being uh, privy to those arrangements and knowing what's different from different eras is something I try to uh, pride myself in. But, like, where it's going and what direction it's going, and a lot of that is just where George is at. And, like, he's a real innovative mind. There have been times where even I, as someone who's young enough to be his grandson or whatever, would be, oh, I don't know, that doesn't make sense to me or whatever, but I just didn't have the wherewithal to understand it until it, until it reached fruition. And whenever it did, I'd be like, okay, I, I can see. A lot of times it takes some years for the rest of us to catch up to where George is at as far as his decisions and the way he thinks. And, like, I go back and look back and be like, oh, yeah. And that was pretty cool, like you know what I mean, like or just whatever, something that I didn't see at the time. So, you know, I think that's just with an open, you know, the band has always been about open mind, about you know the groove and about feel. And I think if a lot of those key elements are still in it, you're gonna have a Parliament Funkadelic that's that's still worth something, you know. But I, again, it's just it's just up to sort of the course of time and the way that it it breathes and grows on its own, you know? Some of the kids like Garrett Scheider and grandkids like Trey Zay, they really have embraced the sound and are really <laughs> honoring the sound, the, the strange melodies, the, the kind of off kilter, you know, uh, uh, vocal delivery and, and that really that whole, Funkad parliament funkadelic vibe and they really have captured it well i would love to see you know obviously if there's going to be some type of continuation of this beyond george but as you say he's really irreplaceable it's kind of like what it's 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 not going to be the same band after after all is said and done but i know that a lot of the funk, funk purists that have been on board with them since the 60s and 70s uh, they're they definitely would would prefer that it kind of captures the same amount, the same spirit and the same, the, the same kind of vibe that, that it's always had. I, I, you always want to see things grow, but then there's always that apprehension because you don't want to see it go down a, a, a road that's too cliche. So I think that's, I think that's the apprehension of a lot of people. It's a difficult thing to, it's a difficult thing to sort of define because you know, when this group started out, they were doing doo-wop, you know, like Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, you know, and then they moved on to some sophisticated style, Smokey Robinson type stuff, and then right. found themselves mo moving further and fur further afield, further left into more grungy territory, and then into full, rage, full, full raging psychedelia to the point of like beyond psychedelia, like proto-metal, like Iggy Pop and the Stooges MC5 type of stuff. And then they started moving in with like small string arrangements and like, you know, the Memphis type of sound stuff. And then there was like a whole Detroit, you know, 70s, that whole period. It's like, you know, people who are influenced by this music, people who take it and do things with it, celebrities or rappers or whoever, they, they tend to be influenced by like one specific moment or like one song. Like, you know, I think about like G-Funk and how it's like all built on like the A part of me beat, you know? Or the B part, I should say. And just like, right. you know, the verse part, that bass line. It's that synth bass line, you know? Like, 
it's like a moment in these songs fuels whole subgenres. You know what I mean? Or like you look at Go Go or just anything else. Like, so it's hard for me. Like, to me, the cliche is pigeonholing it into one particular section that people tend to have a nostalgia for. At the end of the day, right. this group has never been that. It's been the thing that sort of tests you and makes you feel uncomfortable. You know, at the height of their popularity in 78, when One Nation Under a Groove, which is, is un, you know, no argument, was their biggest seller, their biggest platinum hit, and their longest running R&B number one hit, you know, Rolling Stone magazine was saying themselves that, like, Funkadelic isn't supposed to sound pretty or make you comfortable. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable, kind of. Like, and that was at their height. So if they're able to say that at their height, who are we to say, I don't want them to see it move into this or move into that? Because at the end of the day, you could pick out a song, take I Just Got Back, Double O-O. Uh, you know, you could take a song from like any different year, different album, different era, and you'd be like, this is the same band? You know, so to me, the diversity of sound and the constantly like stretching into other areas it doesn't have to be just hip-hop. People use that and just say, like, oh, the, I don't like how it's going to... But really, that's just uh, uh, an instrument for his designs that he occasionally uses. You have to look at it from, like, the artistic perspective and, like, he's hearing what he's hearing and how he wants to place and do what he wants to do, you know? And I think at the end of the day, it's that genre bending. That's what interested me, the fact that nothing was just one thing. I mean, if we were going to just keep putting out, like, things that sound like Flashlight over and over again or, or Up for the Downstroke or whatever the sound is that somebody's attached to, that's when the band becomes stale. That's when it becomes cliche. You know, so both appeasing the fan because they, you know, they want to hear the hits, of course, that makes sense. Both appeasing that and still being able to be innovative and, and move towards different directions it's, it's a balancing act. I think George does it really well, which leads back to the, I don't know how somebody could do what he does, but the idea of moving in different directions, you know, if he's at the helm, you know where that direction is coming from. It's coming from him, you know, and he's always changing. So much like Miles, you know, so uh, I can't question it at this point in my, uh, I don't have the naivete to question it anymore. I've seen too, ma too many changes at this point that, you know, I just belong for the ride. I like to see what the next thing is, you know. Well, that, that is absolutely a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic, knowledgeable answer. And especially yeah. from somebody who is on the inside of all that. How do your parents feel about your accomplishments? I mean, this is obviously a far cry from, from classical music, I guess, because they are very much teachers. And uh, how, how do they feel about where you are? I mean, they got to be proud because you're doing it for a living. Yeah, they're proud of me. They, uh, they, they, you know, they knew that this was what I wanted to do. So I think they were proud of, super proud of the fact that I was able to just get it done. You know what I mean? I think that they, uh, with each, with each passing achievement, getting closer and closer to my goal, I think they were just kind of awestruck, like, oh, this is, he's kind of working it out. You know what I mean? So they're proud of me, you know, and, and, uh, that makes me happy because, they were my teachers for so long and instilled so much in me. I wouldn't be able to do any even close to a, an iota of it without their training. So it's not that far off. Really isn't. You know what I mean? It's, you work, you play, you practice. It's just, it's kind of the same, you know, in a lot of ways. So, um, so yeah, no, they're definitely proud of me. 
Well, I, I'm not your parent, but I can tell you that I'm proud of you because <laughs> you are, you're so inspirational and, and it's, it's because of the fact that you were so focused at 11 years old, at 11 years old, 30 years ago, you said this band right here is the band that I want to play with. You set your sights. You, you, you had a little bit, uh, you know, you had, you worked in 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 uh, did some local band stuff, but then you just you just went at it. You set your goal. You moved. You 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 just went at it and just went directly at it. And I, I can't. It's 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 inspirational and motivational at the same time, man. So I I, I got to say, man, just major major props to you because I mean, both of us, both Jeff and I, are aspiring musicians. I did the professional vocalist thing for a while. I've done national television commercials singing. Um, I've done commercials for Coca-Cola and United Way and Nancy Reagan. And, and uh, so I've done lots of, I've done television commercials. I've actually sang on a lot of different things and did some local band stuff, but then family kind of got involved and I kind of stepped back and just decided that I wanted to support musicians and, and just kind of do my thing. But I still love to sing. I still love to do, uh, do stuff like that. Jeff is, uh, is, is a great musician. He, plays everything he you can see all the instrumentation all around him um he, he does get guitar and bass and keyboards and writes all of his own music as well um but so it's really inspirational to to hear somebody who has really kind of just set their sights and accomplished everything that you have so i mean all that gushing aside kudos to you absolutely yeah. for, for yeah, all that you've out the park, for sure yeah so so well thank you guys coming from fellow musicians that means I appreciate that. So let's go back to the self-promotion piece for you. We want to, we would like you to give us some background on that production and publishing company you have. It's a uh, Bose, Bose Funk Music. And to start, and, and I'm, I want to make sure I say it right, because I'm assuming that there should be an accent in there, <laughs> Bose Funk Music, you know. <laughs> but uh, to start, where did that name come from? And then talk a little more about it. You can say Bose, I just say Bose. It's just, uh, yeah, so like uh, Boss Funk in, in Western Armenian, I'm Western Armenian, in Western Armenian, uh, Boss is kind of like golden sort of, blondish sort of, um, there's kind of that joke with that. In Turkish it means gray, and I was just using it sort of a, a, a few different meanings, but for that like sort of in between, I always used to say a lot of times like it's never... It's always the gray area. It's always like, you know, you can't just say it's up or it's just down. There's always something else to it. It can always go both ways, you know. So I was kind of playing on that idea and uh, done about 53 or 54 productions under that company since 2005. Uh, just released my 20th album under my name from Boss Funk uh, called Dr. Music. And it's an album of all... Uh, Rarity, P-Funk Rare, P-Funk Remake. So songs from different eras of P-Funk history. It's almost a compendium for the book. And uh, and I can promote it, right? I'm allowed to promote on here? Is that okay? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. So the, uh, the only way people can get it is as a free gift for joining my Patreon. So if they join my Patreon, patreon.com slash Danny Bedrosian. Um, and the first gift they'll get is, is the album. So uh, it's all it's all uh, uh, rare P-Funk songs remade with me and 
Uh, Patavian Lewis is on it, and Gabe Gonzalez is on it. Uh, Benny Cowan is on it. Garrett Scheider. Uh, but for the most part, a lot of it is me playing and, and singing. Um, and uh, just really, really proud of it. Uh, wanted to give it away to the fans as a thank you for joining, for joining the Patreon, getting that good content on there. And uh, depending on the tier that they join, that's like the lowest tier, they get a song every month. The middle tier, they get three songs from the album a month, and then the top tier, or the twenty dollars tier, they get the whole album. And then if they stay on, they get a free album every every month. So like, you stay on another Good month, Lord. you get Darmir Caramel, which was the album I put out with the Brothers Nalbandian last year. Um, so it's it's that kind of thing. I and I can go on for months and months and months because I'm constantly creating. So uh, a free album every month, you stay on, you know, and you can collect all the music that you haven't gotten of mine. Tell, tell me, are you sending vinyl? It's a good question. It's an amazing question. I've, I, I've, I've been doing vinyl research for about a year and a half now, like serious market research, because somewhere around 42% of my audience wants vinyl, and I got these 20 solo albums that I can draw from. So I put out a, I did a, a poll on my Patreon, on my Facebook, my Instagram, saying which one of my albums would you guys like to see? And so we're still getting votes. Votes are still coming in. And we have sort of an idea of what we want to do. And so, yeah, I'm going to start putting out vinyl reissues of some of my older albums. I'm trying to pick and choose the ones that have the best combination of memorable songs and, and, and artwork that you'd love to see blown up. A lot of my stuff has real cartoony artwork, too. So I want to incorporate that into the package, you know. But the thing is, a lot of my albums are so long, they're going to have to be double and sometimes triple vinyl. So... Right. We're trying to look at the cost, you know, cost effectiveness and uh, and that kind of thing. So, but yeah, that is in the works for 2022. Sweet, you know, your discography is is ridiculous. I mean, uh, for those that are not familiar with everything that he's worked on, you can go to his website at uh, dannybedrosian.com slash discography dot html, or just go to dannybedrosian dot com and you can just click on discography from there and it's like this laundry list and it's not even it's it's not even complete it's because i think it's i don't know where it stops but it's sick it's it's ridiculous is there an album or work and you can probably say this about multiple albums but is there an album or work that you've done that you were like man you know what Th that should have blown up or, or something that you're just insanely proud of that when you were done you were like oh man this is this is it this is the one and it just didn't get the traction that it deserved is there something that really really stands out that you're like damn that was it and it just didn't happen well there's a few that i sort of feel that way about um in, you know, in recent years, I'm, I'm really proud of the last two that I put out, you know, Garmir Caramel and, and Exaltation. That uh, one's fantastic. Two, two of my favorites, really, ones I've done. And going back in some of my older albums, there was one I did called Monsterpiece in 2010 that I really felt close to. There was one called My Oldest Friend from 2016 that I really liked. And then at the time, although now looking back, I probably feel differently, but I was a different person. You know, I did a double album in 07 called Pleasiest of Degrees that a lot of my fans to this day, they're like, that's my favorite thing you did, you know. Looking back now, you know, I was in a whole different headspace, if you know what I mean. And like the production value is so different than anything I would record today. but so different. Like, but that's almost kind of the viable thing about it for me as far as looking back and being like, oh, yeah, 
And then with other people, you know, I've always enjoyed all the work I've been able to collaborate on with George and with other members of the band. I've played in a lot of the my bandmates' solo records and their bands um, a lot. And uh, like like you guys are saying, you can go to the discography page and, and see just some of them. But really, I'm very proud of a lot of the stuff I did with George. Probably my favorite stuff I did with George on record was was probably the stuff we did on Medicaid Fraud Dog, especially the stuff I got to do on Grand Piano, on his Grand Piano. I was really into a lot of that stuff. Um, there's one called uh, Dada that I really like. And um, Great song. Pain Management is another one. And uh, anti-social, anti-social Media. There's a few that I was really close that. I was really close to those songs and the process and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but a lot of times my opinion like is so different than what uh, the fans or any, anybody, my friends or my peers, they have a different way of looking at what I do than I do. And so like it's the best kind of insight I could possibly ever have because I'm not even thinking in the way the fans are thinking. And when I finally get their input, I'm like, oh, Okay, you know, and I do utilize that. I utilize that information for the future. You know, I try not, I try not to make it the driving factor, but I always try to let it be up in there so that I'm, I'm conscious of, of demand and and interest and things like that. But yeah, there's, yeah, there's there's been stuff over the years that I've been like, wow, that, to me, that's that was like the one, you know. Um, right. But again, then other people tell me something else was the one, and I just be like, oh, okay, I wasn't even thinking about that one. So that's how it is a lot of times. Yeah, I simply can't believe that I have not heard about a lot of the work that you've done. And one of the first things that I absolutely will be doing once we're done here is joining your Patreon because I, I kind of feel like I've got a ton of catch up to do. I mean, it's like digging up a huge funk treasure chest of new music. And um, <clears throat> that's one of the things that we love We love here. And on top of that, we have, uh, we have the 24-7 funk radio station uh, that is on an app called Funked Up that you can download for iPhone and Android. And it's literally 24 seven funk music. And uh, we just added Garmir Caramel. We added a couple of tracks from that album into the rotation. Um, and it's just, you know, so it's it's good to kind of get that music out there and just kind of just make it happen. And um, I'd like to ask every Funkatopian to head to dannybedrosian.com and pick up some of his releases because the volume of music that is there is just is just insane. And obviously you see the Patreon um, uh, thing going across the bottom there. Join that. And if you join, you get you get all kinds of stuff from him. So uh, just pick up some version. It's just it's ridiculous. But why do you think that it is so difficult nowadays for bands, including yourself, to be able to kind of get the word out about releases and performances? What What, what is... I know that there's such a mass volume of music. You go to Spotify and every single day, there's like two dozen more new releases. Um, but what do you think the primary issue is with, with not being able to get any traction nowadays? Well, I think, you know, without, without being too verbiose about it, I think that like the, the overall issue with digitization of, of the music industry um, and the allowing of, of independent artists to promote themselves, own their own masters, has both a good and a bad side. I mean, the good side is, like I said, we get to own our own, own our own masters, put out our own music, control it. You know, all of those things are great, but we don't have the access to the 
uh, once powerful record industries, uh, production chain, uh, promotion chain, distribution chain. Um, and this is a really important facet. Those of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s and remember the end of the record industry, as it were, we remember still going and buying albums or uh, hearing about them being out and buying them better. Like, you know, and this is before the internet. This is before, you know, um, that kind of promotion was even allowed to be a part of the equation. So you would think that it would be easier, but in a lot of ways it's harder because with the, you know, with the increased autonomy, there's also decreased uh, range and decreased uh, exposure to a greater area, a larger amount of people. And with social media, it's all, it's, it's you know, almost like electronic tribalism. You know, you've got your 4,000 here and your 12,000 here and your 1,000 here. And you're allowed to make it to a certain point, but to go over into those major distribution markets, that's controlled by conglomerates that are, have lost their power and are, are not necessarily interested in sharing whatever little um, benefits they have left. So, you know, it's really parties that don't talk to each other as a result of a, a kind of splintering of an industry in, you know, because of an ever-changing world, you know, a world uh, going into technology and, and, you know, into the 21st century and, and all the, with all those things, there's new methods and the new methods come by so fast that sometimes they don't have a plan or thought or laws to follow them. So that's why you have some of the confusion or chaos, I think, I guess that goes along with us. As artists, all we can do is put it out and try to promote it as, as well as we can um but we don't have the instruments of 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 the tools and instruments of promotion that once were 25 years ago and more you know uh right. those are just not available to us in the way they were before we can communicate with one another much better than we could and and thankfully for that that's the way this stuff is getting out but other than that there's no big trade magazine that we're all reading because there is no internet type of thing you know what i mean and Right. Those type of things really sold products, you know. So it's a different age now. We have to find new ways to sort of be relevant and 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 uh, vital enough to be collected. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so now, I have to give you a massive congratulations again for landing on Funkatopia's annual best funk list of 2021. Um, for that phenomenal album, the one uh, Carmel, um, with the uh, Nalbandian brothers, yep. or the brothers Mambalian. Now you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yep. um, How did you get connected with them, and what's their story? They're just these really funky Armenian guys from Yerevan, Armenia. That uh, I had heard about from Armenian friends before they even reached out to me, and I had checked them out and were like, "Wow, these guys, yeah, they're funky. They're real cool." And then we had gotten in touch with one another. I don't remember exactly how, but we had started talking and, uh, and started doing um, recordings together. And, and we were doing um, just singles, really. We were just thinking of it as we got to make the best singles we can make. And then over time, it's like, oh, I guess we could maybe possibly make an album out of this, you know? And, and, uh, but we were really just focusing in on quality and 
they have said, you know, like P-Funk is one of their favorite bands and there's an Armenian guy in P-Funk that just blew their minds and they, we got to work together. And I was really proud of the stuff we did. I, I did most of that album on COVID, Alpha Variant, <laughs> in the beginning wow. stages of 2020. So wow. in and out of the hospital, back and forth from my, stu- my home studio, like really just getting it in, you know, and... Uh, and so, yeah, I'm really proud of that effort. And I, I was very honored to be on your list and to have made the list of uh, Best Downs of 2021. Super honored, uh, Jeff and Christopher. It was really, really very kind to you guys. And, yeah, it was, it was a real labor of love. You know, there was a lot of different um, albums that kind of came into the mix. And, and it's, it's a very, very difficult process every single time that, you know, um, I'm in a situation where I have to, I have to analyze all the albums that came out within a, a year's period of time. And, you know, you could go down some serious, serious rabbit holes because just like in the instance of Garmir Caramel, what was, you know, this is an album that really didn't get a whole bunch of, uh, it just didn't get a whole bunch of spotlight. It was just, it was a very, very difficult thing to kind of to, to stumble upon but you know sometimes fate has it where you 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 land on something and it's like holy crap and um it, I, I think my only my only reservation or my only uh complaint about the album really was that it was 28 minutes long <laughs> that's, <Right. really> it. <laughs> that's the only complaint that i have because i i, li- I literally could sit and absorb that album for for the better part of an hour i mean it's just it's so friggin' good and um I, I, all i can tell you is that um what i would tell everybody is to please 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 head to actually obviously if you ha- go to funkatopia.com uh, the post that we just did for the top 20 albums um you will actually hear the you'll actually be able to listen to the album right there on on uh, on the page uh, obviously via a, a, a spotify embed you can hear it on funkatopia.com you can listen to it on spotify but the most important thing obviously as i say it all the time please buy a physical copy of this album buy it. Um, or purchase it from amazon because when you listen on spotify that's all great and dandy but they get 0.0001 cent or whatever it is per right or whatever so don't please pick up a physical copy head to patreon.com slash danny bedrosian we've had the the scroll going across here on the bottom of the screen here now for for quite a bit it's an honor to have you on the show please everybody go to danny bedrosian.com and head over and, and be able to support him as as much as you possibly can join the patreon pick up some music and uh, just and also uh, do whatever you possibly can to help support him with uh, for the Armenians in Syria and that project that he is going on the website. There is an opportunity to be able to click over to his PayPal so that you can actually donate uh, to that cause via that means as well. So there's so much going on, so much covered here. Mm-hmm. And I cannot even begin to tell you how, what an honor it is to have you on the show, Danny. And uh, hopefully this is not the last we're going to be in touch because I know we got to talk about the book. Yep. Uh, I think somebody mentioned a comic book here too. I think it was Jeremy as well mentioned, do you have a comic book in the mix? What's, what, what's the story there? Yeah. So I have uh, well, thank you both you guys, Jeff, Chris, again, for having me. Uh, I do have a comic book out that, that, uh, that is for sale. 
It's called Sons of the Sun. It's like, you know, what Thor is to Norse mythology, Sons of the Sun is to like Armenian mythology. So it's dealing with 7,000 years of monsters and dra dragons and giants and gods and demons and princesses and all kinds of good stuff. War and love and everything in between. And uh, we're, we're working on issue number three right now. I have a, a, an artist and a, a colorist that work with me. And, uh, and we've done two issues so far. You can get the digital version of the first issue. First, first issue sold out. Number two, there's like three or four issues left. And we're working on number three. And you can get all that through my, my PayPal or my, um, or my Cash App or Venmo. Uh, uh, and there's, you know, links to that stuff you know, on my Instagram and stuff like that. You guys can, can find it there. But yeah, issue number two is still for sale. All the stories are self-contained, so you don't have to read one to understand the other. Um, and it's like a past, a long time kind of side hustle passion of mine that I've, I've always been into making comics ever since I was a little kid. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, it's something else that I do. <laughs> man, well, I, I, again, I can... It's it's been an honor to have you on board, man, and uh, thank you so so much for joining us here. And everybody, head to dannybedrosian.com, and there's so oh. much information you're going to get lost on that website. Thank you so so much, and thank you, everybody. You know where to go: Patreon.com/slash Danny Bedrosian or dannybedrosian.com. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Christopher. I appreciate all the support. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in.